Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, found on page 1040 in the Pew Bibles. Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11, I'll be reading uh, through verse 8 of chapter uh, 21. As I said last week, these verses are part of a series of visions that really began back in chapter 19, a, a series of visions that together constitute a photo mosaic of God's redemptive history, of what God has been doing in Christ and is continuing to do and will continue to do until he brings that good work to completion on that day when God's righteous judgment is finally revealed. Remember that the first vision introduced us to Christ as the warrior king who carries out the, the fury of God's wrath against all of his enemies with an irresistible power. The second vision shows us uh, the battle that goes on the, the, and the absolute and utter defeat of those who stand against the Lord's anointed. The third vision shows us Satan himself being bound and, and um, secured so that he can no longer stop the advance of God's kingdom and fulfillment of, God, of Jesus' uh, prediction that the gates of hell will not be able to stand against the advance of his church. And then the fourth vision showed us that thousand-year reign of Christ uh, where he reigns on earth with his saints uh, to the glory and the praise of God, followed by Satan's final release, not so that not to do further damage, uh, but to be uh, to receive his final condemnation. We looked at those four visions last Sunday. And in looking at them, I, I said to you uh, repeatedly that we may disagree about the details of interpretation. We may disagree about the timing of the events that are described. But even with the disagreements that we have among us, nevertheless, the overall picture is clear. The overall picture is unmistakable. It is easy to see. In the end, Revelation teaches us that in the end, Jesus wins. Jesus wins and His enemies will be utterly and completely defeated. And those who stand with him will be utterly and completely saved. That is the message of Revelation. It is a revelation that John's original hearers needed to hear in the midst of their persecution. It is a message that we need to hear today. Today we're going to look at the next two visions in the series which really continue the story of Jesus' work of, of redemption. The first has to do with uh, the judgment day, that, that judgment uh, which all men must one day face. And the second has to do with the reality and the, the nature of the eternal life that we will enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth. And it is my prayer this morning that in looking at these visions, we will grow in a living hope that will sustain us in the midst of the difficulties and the trials of living life in this broken world until that day when God does finally bring to completion the good work which he has begun. So let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon our study of his word here this morning. Father God, we again humbly admit to you that Revelation is a hard book, that it is a book that is uh, at times difficult to understand, that, that many of the details are perplexing. 
And we do not always agree with one another about exactly what they mean. But Father God, help us this morning not to get lost in the details. Help us this morning not to get sidetracked by that which we don't understand. But Father, let us simply step back and in the power of your Holy Spirit see the big picture. See the the triumph of your Son, the Lamb of God who was slain. To see his triumph over all of his enemies and the accomplishment of salvation for all those who have received him and now rest upon him for salvation. Father, use this word this morning to proclaim your good news and to cause it to take put down deep roots in our hearts, that our minds might be renewed and our lives transformed to the praise of your glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And that is the reading of God's Word. Some years ago, Hollywood produced a version of Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. And if you've seen that movie, you remember that at some point in that movie, you get a glimpse into Hollywood's understanding of what a Puritan worship service would have looked like and of what a Puritan sermon would have sounded like. And the sermon that you hear is very much a fire and brimstone type sermon. 
It is, it is a sermon which is proclaiming uh, with great and vivid detail the coming fury for those who do not repent and rest upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Well, in recent years, such fire and brimstone preaching has sort of fallen out of vogue. People don't really preach that way much anymore. It's not considered seeker-sensitive. It's not considered the type of preaching that would cause someone to, to come back a second time to your church. And while I understand a lot of the reasons for why such preaching has fallen out of vogue, and while I actually think some of those reasons are actually pretty good, uh, why such preaching has fallen out of vogue, I want you to hear this morning that there is a place for such preaching. There is a praise for such such fire and brimstone preaching, not because it's effective, but because it's true. The vision that we have here before us this morning, this this first vision at the end of chapter 20, is a vision of a real judgment. A real judgment that all men must one day face. A judgment that we are not going to be able to withstand if we stand on our own two feet. Notice what John sees as he sees this great white throne. The first thing that he says is that from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away. You see that in in verse 11. The idea here is that this God who sits upon the throne is a God who is to be feared. The author of Hebrews describes him as a consuming fire. The picture that John sees is that even the creation, even the earth and the sky, hide themselves from his presence. Even the creation cannot stand before him. This is a God who is not to be trifled with. Think of Esther. Think of Esther and the fear that she felt in in going before her husband, the king. She feared for her life because she knew that this one before whom she was about to go had the power to take her life. Well, Jesus said, do not fear the one who can merely kill the body, but fear the one who has power over both the body and the soul. The king of of Persia could could have taken Esther's life. The king who sits upon this throne has power over your body and your soul. Take the fear that Esther felt and multiply that to the nth degree. And you have something of what this vision is meant to conjure up, what it's meant to stir up in your soul. You are supposed to feel fear as you see this vision of the great king sitting upon his throne. And you're supposed to fear because you know that one day you are going to have to stand before this king. Notice what John sees. He says that all men, from the greatest to the least, must stand before this king. All men, without exception. When John sees that the sea and and that death and that Hades, that all of these different uh, various uh, places where the dead might be resting, when all of them give up their dead, that, that vision is meant to drive home the point that none is exempt. That no one is going to be excluded. That no one will escape this judgment. That all will one day stand before him. And they are going to be judged according to the content of one of two books. Notice that when the men come before uh, the throne, he said that there were these books that were opened. 
And these books seem to contain um, the record of the things that people have done in their life. It, it contains a record of, of all the, the thoughts, the words, the, the actions that you have performed. You've probably heard something like this before. I can remember when I was a kid hearing people say, you know what, when you face the final judgment, there's going to be a movie that's going to play. And it's going to show everything you've ever done in your life. Well, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty terrifying thought. There are lots and lots and lots of things that I have done, lots of things that I have thought, words that maybe I said under my breath and no one else heard that, that I don't want to be publicly broadcast on that day. Things that I am ashamed of. Things, things that I don't want anybody to know about. I'm sure you've got your own list. There are things every day, in fact, that I'm like, oh, I can't believe I just thought that. I'm, I'm, I'm glad no one could read my mind. Well, think about all of those thoughts being Exposed. Paul says it clearly in Romans chapter 2. He says, on that day, God is not only going to judge the public things, but He is going to judge even the secret things. Everything that we have done will be exposed. Everything that we, will do, we have done will be, uh, the sub, will be entered into evidence at our judgment. But the author of Hebrews says, before Him, we stand naked and exposed with no place to hide, with nothing to cover our shame, with no excuses to be offered up. We will simply stand to be judged according to the things that we have done. And that is not a pleasant picture. Because here John says that those who are judged according to this book, those who are judged according to their own record, that they will not be able to withstand the judgment. Those who are, who are judged according to the things that they have done, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Because all men, without exception, as we saw so clearly in Paul's letter to the Romans, all men, without exception, are justly deserving of the fury of God's wrath. That wrath that, that Jesus is carrying out in the first vision that we saw last week, that wrath is owed to us. It is owed to us because of the sins that we have committed, because of the rebellion that we have committed against God, because of the ways in which we have put ourselves first and, and used other people to advance our own interests, because of the ways that we have taken their lives for our benefit rather than giving our lives for theirs. Because of the lives that we've lived, because of the things that we have done in our body, the fury of God's wrath is owed to us. And those who are judged according to that record, they will be condemned. And whatever there is to say about sort of fire and brimstone preaching, however much people don't like it, they need to hear that truth. There is a judgment that is coming. There is going to be a day when you're going to have to give an account. And the record of the things that you have done is not going to be a good record to stand on on that day. You don't want to be caught relying upon your own performance. And that's why it's such good news that John sees a second book. Here he says there were books open, but there was a second book. And he refers to that second book as the book of life. And we were first introduced to this book in, back in chapter Three, where we learn that those whose names were written in it would, would escape the judgment of God and that they would receive eternal life. And in chapter 13 of Revelation, uh, we learned uh, whose names it was that was written in this book. And we learned that it was 
the elect. It was the names of the elect who were chosen before the foundation of the world. They were the, they were the ones who had their names written in this book. They were the ones who were going to escape the fury of God's wrath. Now, I know that the main point of this passage is not to teach us about God's election. But I feel that I must at least address it because this is a problem for so many people today. So many people today are troubled by the idea of God's election. And I I feel I must make at least a couple of points here about what is being said about this book of life. And the first thing that I must say is that you must recognize that those who are condemned, they are not condemned because they were not elect. Do you see that? They're, They're not condemned because they weren't chosen. They're condemned because of the things that they have done in the body of their own free will. If you want to talk about free will, well, this is what free will gets you. Free will gets you condemnation. Doing what you want to do in your sinful nature earns you condemnation. You're not condemned because you're not elect. That's not the reason. You're condemned because of the things that you have done. And the second thing that we must say is that God, because God chooses to have mercy on some and not all, while that may be hard for us to process, while it may be hard for us to comprehend or to understand, we must admit that it is not unjust. God is the maker of heaven and earth, and he says uh, without qualification, without apology, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. If we begin telling God what he must do with his mercy, then we are no longer thinking of it as mercy. We are thinking of it as justice. If mercy is to be mercy, then it is to be uh, dispensed according to God's gracious choice. He can do with it what he wants. He is God. And he can have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And thirdly, recognize this, that if God did not choose to have mercy on some, then none would be saved. If God simply made salvation available, if God just simply put Jesus forward as a sacrifice for sin, and said, okay, the price is paid. I'm making it available to everyone. Now let's see who chooses it. Let's see who will accept my gift. You know who would accept it? No one. If God simply made salvation available, no one would be saved. Because we are by nature, we are by birth, we are in our sin hostile towards God. We are not looking for a Lord. We are not looking for a King. We are not looking for one to to be our God. We may be looking for a genie to get us out of jams at times. We may be looking for someone with a lot of power to, to save us when we're in trouble. But we're not looking for someone to be our God, our King of kings, and our, and our Lord of lords. We are by nature hostile towards God. And so if God just simply made salvation available, none of us would choose it. It takes a work of regeneration. It, it takes God removing a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. It takes a, um, an act of God to move us to receive the gift of His salvation. He must work in us. He must give us a heart to know and to love Him. If God did not elect some to salvation, then none would be saved. And finally, what I want you to see is that this doctrine of election in no way contradicts the, the teaching of this same author in John chapter 3, verse 16. Maybe the most famous verse in all of the New Testament, which says that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. 
people sometimes hear the doctrine of election and they say, well, how can, how can that be compatible with whosoever will? Well, they go together perfectly. They fit together perfectly. Uh, people sometimes think that election means uh, that uh, a person may want to be saved. They, they, they may, may be crying out to God for salvation, but because they're not elect, too bad for them. They're, 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 they're out. They can't enjoy this salvation. But the truth is that none, that no one who, who desires to be saved will ever be rejected. You know, the image in some people's mind is sort of like the docks maybe during the Great Depression. If you've ever, if you've ever seen a movie like Cinderella Man or On the Waterfront, you, you've seen these pictures of, of people at the docks and um, you know, the, the, the owners of the docks are going to come out and, and, and they have you know, 30 jobs for the day and there's 500 men gathered at the dock and, and they kind of toss out their coins and if you get one of the coins, you have a job for that day. And, but there's, there's hundreds of people there who want them and that's the way that election is. That's not the way that election is. Election, there is no one clamoring for this salvation uh, that's not going to get it because they're not elect. In fact, election is much more like an empty dock where, where the owner of, the, of uh, the pier has to go out into the streets and has to compel people to come in. Has to force people to say, take this job. That has to change their heart before they'll be willing to do the work. That is the picture. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, writing to the Thessalonians, he says, Brothers, we know that God has chosen you. We know that God has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. Paul says, listen, we don't, we don't see the decree of God. We don't know the election of God, but we can know whom God has elected. Because those whom God has elected, they are the ones who receive the gospel, not as mere words. They receive it as the power of God for salvation. They, they believe it. They rejoice in it. They celebrate it. And they rest in it for their own salvation. Paul knew that the Thessalonian Christians were elect because they had received his preaching with joy. And that they had been transformed by it. If you are here this morning and you have heard the good news of Jesus Christ, and you have received Him as your Savior, then I can say to you with absolute assurance that you are among the elect. You are among the elect because you have received the gospel with joy. That's what Paul said to the Thessalonians. That's what I can say to you. Election doesn't mean that some who want to be saved won't. Election means that, that those who don't have any desire to be saved will. Because God will work in their hearts to change them and to give them that faith which is unto eternal life. So the bottom line is this. There is a cosmic battle going on. A cosmic battle between God and Satan. And we must decide which side we are going to stand with. We must decide who, which king we are going to follow. Because the reality is this, that in that day, in that final day, Jesus is going to win. He is going to defeat His enemies. And all those who side with His enemy, they will receive His enemy's fate. But hear this, those who side with Him, those who bow the knee to Him and receive Him as Lord, they will receive His fate. Remember what the New Testament says about Jesus. It says that He is the first fruits. What does that mean? What does it mean to speak of Jesus as the first fruits? Well, in, in the Old Testament, the first fruits were sort of the, those first crops, those, the first produce that a farmer could get out of his harvest. It was a token of the full harvest that was yet to come. Well, Jesus' resurrection was merely the first fruits of the full harvest. 
And we are the rest of the harvest. We are going to be like Him, made new. We, like Him, are going to live in an earth, a new heavens and a new earth, which is completely made new. That is what is in store for those who receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. And that is what we see here in the second vision, the, the vision in the first part, the first eight verses of chapter 21. And it's vital that we look at this vision. It's vital that we have a sense of what's coming. Because our understanding of the future, our understanding of what's in store for us, has a tremendous impact on the way we experience life now. Our understanding of the future shapes our experience of the present. Tim Keller tells the story of two men who were sentenced to ten years hard labor in a Russian gulag. The first of these men was, as he was going in, uh, was told that his, by his wife and children they would be waiting for him, that they were alive and they were going to be waiting for him. The second man was told as he was entering that his wife and children had been killed. Keller says it doesn't take a genius to, to figure out which one of those men is being, going to be able to endure the ten years hard labor. It's the same circumstances for both. But their understanding of the future, their understanding of what's waiting for them, shapes how they're going to experience it. The one man is going to be able to endure, while the other is not, because of the hope that he has for the future. What is it with this in mind that John writes the book of Revelation? John did not write Revelation to be a puzzle book for people some 20 centuries later to to try to figure out exactly how the world is going to end. If that's what you're doing with the book of Revelation, then you are missing the point. It's not a puzzle book, but it is a book to give us comfort. It is a book to give us hope. Paul, I mean, uh, John writes for, for people who are about to go through a trial unlike the church had yet seen in the first century. Under Nero, there had been some persecution, but now uh, uh, there is going to be a persecution unlike anything the Christians had yet experienced. A a systematic, um, terribly earnest persecution and and attempt to really root out the church. The the Christians are going to be taken into the Colosseum. They're going to be thrown to wild beasts. They're going to be impaled on on sticks. They are going uh, to be persecuted in ways that, that we can hardly imagine. And John writes Revelation not as an esoteric exercise, but he writes it that they might be comforted as they experience their trial. That they might have a hope for the future as they endure unknown suffering. But we may never have to face the type of trials that John's first readers faced. But we need to know the same message. We need to hear Revelation's message of hope if we are going to stand and withstand the trials that we are going to face in this broken world. And we are going to face trials. We are going to face the pain of of brokenness. We are going to face all kinds of things. And if we are going to endure the afflictions that we suffer in this life, then we must know the hope of this vision that John sees. So what is this vision? Well, notice what John says. He says, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, for those of you who like going to the beach, as as my family does, that may not sound like good news. You you may not be too excited to know that the sea is going to be no more, but but you have to remember that John here is using the sea as a symbol. 
in the scriptures. The sea represents chaos. It, it represents disorder. It represents a danger. Just think back to the creation story. When God first creates, what are we told? We're told that, that water covers the face of the deep and things are formless and void. They are, there is chaos and it is out of that chaos that God brings the order of creation. Well, here in John's vision, notice, we see that work of God bringing order out of the chaos brought to a total completion. Where the sea, it's not just that there's some land, but now the sea is completely eradicated. The sea no longer has a place. God's dominion has been established across the entire face of the earth. The sea is completely removed. Now that may or may not mean that there's going to literally be no ocean. I I don't think that it means there will be no ocean in the new heavens and new earth. I, I don't know for sure. But it's a symbol. It's a symbol of of chaos that has been utterly and completely removed. And it's not just the sea that's been removed. But notice the entire first heaven and first earth is no more. The creation that had been defiled by sin, the creation that had been polluted, the creation that had been broken is not just um, it's not just fixed. It is completely replaced. You ever been in a car accident? Ever had your ever hit somebody or had somebody hit you and and you take your car to the shop and you get it fixed, but it doesn't matter how good the body shop is, that car is never quite the same. Sarah and I had a '97 Volkswagen Jetta that, on one of our many trips between Chattanooga and St. Louis when I was in uh, seminary, I had the uh, um, audacity to to slam into the median wall, uh, you know, on the interstate, and and that car was very badly damaged, and we took it to the best you know repair shop that our you know, that we could find, and we had the car fixed, but we continued to own that car for another five or six years after that, and I can tell you, in my mind, that car was never the same. Sarah tells me that I'm delusional, but for me, I'm convinced uh, that that car just wasn't ever right after that. Maybe it's because I had wrecked it so badly that I just didn't like it, but, but it just wasn't quite the same. Things were never, uh, never right again. When you're in a wreck, when your car's in a wreck, you don't want it just to be fixed. You want it to be replaced. You would like them to give you a new car, a car that's never been wrecked. Well, that's, that's what God is saying he's going to do. He's not just going to fix creation. He is going to make it new. The one sitting on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. As if they were never wrecked. As if they were never touched by sin. So that there is no remnant. So that there is no remembrance. So that there is no trace of the curse. He makes His blessing flow far as the curse is found. That is what God is doing. Notice what this new creation is going to be like. It is, it is, a, it is a creation that, that comes down out of heaven. That's what we've been praying for in the Lord's prayers. If not, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Notice that the vision is not of us escaping the creation and going to heaven as some kind of disembodied spirits. But the idea is that heaven comes down to earth. God's dwelling comes down to earth. That which was originally intended for His creation is now brought to fruition. That's the vision of our future. Everything right about creation is made new. Keller, uh, in his sermon on these verses, says that as uh, when we grow into adulthood, we often have memories of things that we experienced in childhood. Memories of, of just great places that we went on vacation or, or great foods that we had. But then when we actually go back and experience those places again, and when we actually go back and have those foods again, we think, is this really what it was? We have memories of things that we've actually never experienced. And C.S. Lewis says those memories 
are an echo of what we were created for. They are meant to create in us a longing for something more. A longing for something that we have never yet experienced. Because we have never yet experienced anything that was unpolluted by sin. But the inheritance that is waiting for us, Peter tells us, is an inheritance that is undefiled. That's never been touched by sin. It is an inheritance that is imperishable. It can never be touched by sin. And it is an inheritance that is unfading. Its glory will never get old. We will never grow tired of it. That is what is in store for us. That is what is coming. That is the hope. And and we are told that in that creation, there will be no tears. There will be no pain. There will be no mourning. There will be no sorrow of any kind. That is what is in store for us. And our relationship with God will be completely restored. His dwelling place will again be among His people. Those covenant promises will be filled, will be fulfilled in full. That God will be our God and we will be His people. This is our hope. And when God says, write this down, He is saying that this is a hope that is absolutely certain. The one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is the beginning and the end, says, this is the way it's going to be. There is no chance that these plans will not come to fruition. All those who have received and and rested upon Jesus Christ. John says the one who conquers, the one who who stands in his faith, the one who can rest upon Jesus Christ alone for his salvation, he is the one who will have this heritage. That is your hope this morning. That you have an inheritance and a new heavens and a new earth that is undefiled, that is unpolluted, that is all-glorious, that is made completely new. A new heavens and a new earth where you will have a relationship with God as it was intended to be from the very beginning. And knowing that, having that hope ought to radically affect the way that we live. Think about it. In your marriage, what is it that sets you free to love your spouse, even when your own needs aren't being What is it that sets you free to to be more concerned about them than you are about yourself? It is this hope. It is the confidence of what is coming to you, of what is yours by right, of what the Alpha and the Omega has promised. What is it that that sets you free from the all-consuming pursuit of wealth, the, the pursuit of wealth at any cost? Again, it is this hope. It is this hope that says, it is not the riches of this world that are my security. It is not the riches of this world that guarantee my life, but it is the promise of God. Therefore, I am free. I don't have to pursue the riches of this world. I don't have to pursue this world's treasures. I can live another way. I can can live by a different agenda, an agenda that the world won't understand. But I don't have to pursue the treasures of this world because they are not my security. What is it that sets you free to use the wealth that God gives you for the good of others and not simply for your own pleasure? Again, it is this hope. It is this assurance that uh, there is a far greater joy in store for you than anything the treasures of this world could ever purchase. You don't have to to try to, to grab all the gusto now. You don't have to carpe diem seize the day because you know that this is not your last day. That you have an eternity in store for you that allows you to say, today I will deny myself. Today I will serve another because I know what God has in store for me. 
This hope ought to radically change your life. Christians ought to live. They ought to be such people of hope that, that the people of the world look and say, what is it with you? Why do you live differently? Because it is that question that is going to give us the opportunity to confess Christ before men as the reason for the hope that we have. When we live as people of hope, the world will notice and they will not understand. And sometimes they will hate it. But other times, they, by God's grace, they will be called to it. To the one, it will be uh, the aroma of death. To the other, it will be the aroma of life. But either way, it is the aroma of the hope, the living hope, that is ours in Christ. So the question I must ask you is this. Do you know this hope? Is this hope yours? If it is, if you know what it is to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then I challenge you, live like it. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, but you must live as a person of hope. But if you are here this morning and you do not know this hope, if you don't know what it is to be certain of your future, then I challenge you, let John's vision move you. Let John's vision challenge you to receive and rest upon the King of kings and the Lord of lords because He is your only hope. He is the only hope you have of of standing in that judgment and of receiving inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. He's the only hope. But hear this, he's also the only hope you'll ever need. Because he is a sure and certain hope. He says, write it down. It's that absolutely certain. And because it is, because this promise is made by the Alpha and the Omega, because this promise is made by the Almighty God, because this promise is made by the one who sits upon the throne, that is why we call this promise good news. How do you believe that? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, may we be people of hope. Father, drive this gospel deep into our heart. Let it put down roots and let it bring forth fruit to the praise of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.